What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. Both Britain and the EU would be happier if they got divorced. This debate took place at Cadogan Horn in London on the 20th of March 2013. Well, hello, I'm Nick Gowing, and welcome to Cadogan Hall here in London. Nearly 1,000 people uh, here gathering to debate uh, one of the most contentious issues in politics, Britain's relationship with the European Union. Well, Prime Minister David Cameron promised that if the Conservative Party wins the next election, the UK will hold an in-out referendum in 2017. So, the motion tonight, Britain and the EU would be happier if they got divorced. And we have a stellar panel for you. Arguing for the motion, Daniel Hannan, Conservative member of the European Parliament, author of A Doomed Marriage, Britain and Europe. And Nigel Farage, also an MEP, leader of the UK Independence Party, UKIP, and against the motion. Katinka Barish, German-born, Deputy Director of the Centre for European Reform, an independent London-based think tank. And Leon Britton. British politician, former vice president of the European Commission, currently vice chairman of UBS Investment Bank. Well, shortly, you'll hear from all four panellists, two for the motion, two against. The debate will then be thrown open to you in the audience here. And you were all polled as you came into this hall uh, for this debate. We'll give you that result after we've heard from our four speakers. You will vote again uh, at the end to see how opinion has changed, how it shifted, how many more have abstained, how many more have moved in one direction or another. So there's much to speak for tonight. Let's now move on with the panellists to make their opening statements in this Intelligence Squared debate on Britain and the EU would be happier if they got divorced. Speaking for the motion, Daniel Hannan, journalist, author and politician. He's currently a Conservative MEP, fluent in Spanish and French. He is known for expressing his trenchant Eurosceptic views in the European Parliament. Daniel Hannan, the floor is yours. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, for most countries, EU membership was a product of pessimism. A confident, optimistic country, a country like Norway or Switzerland, feels no need 
to trade in its present liberties. Certainly in our case, we joined at a moment of great despair. The early and mid-1970s were perhaps our lowest time as a modern country. Those of you who can remember uh, will recall what it was like with the three-day week with the prices and incomes policies, we were the sick man of Europe, we had double-digit inflation, constant strikes, trade union problems, and we looked across the channel. And it seemed to us that Western Europe had discovered something that we were missing. Between 1945 and 1973, the year that we joined, Western Europe had spectacularly outperformed the United Kingdom, had outgrown us for reasons which we can now see. We looked across and we thought, we need to hitch our wagon to that locomotive. My friends, our timing could not have been worse. We thought we were joining a growing and prosperous market. In fact, we were confining ourselves in a cramped and dwindling customs union. Far from hitching our wagon to a powerful economic locomotive, We shackled ourselves to a corpse. And we did so at the moment that the developing markets, not least those of the Commonwealth from which we had crazily stood aside, were beginning to take off. According to the IMF, over the next five years, the Eurozone will barely grow at all, but the Commonwealth will grow at 7.2% per year. That is the central fact of our existence. And here's the extraordinary thing. We are paying for the privilege, and paying very substantial sums, how can we sustain, morally or economically, a situation where not only we but all 27 member countries are making difficult spending cuts at home, and every penny we save is being sent to Brussels? For what benefit? I'm sure we'll hear about peace in Europe. So what else have we got out of it? I won't even touch on the constitutional and democratic objections, the fact that our laws are now made not just by people that you didn't vote for, but by by people that nobody voted for, by 27 unelected European commissioners, people who generally have to have lost an election before they're appointed to the commission, a uniquely anti-democratic system. So let me instead ask you this. Is it possible to conceive of a situation where we could have the advantage of trade in Europe, of free movement of goods and services, while at the same time being able to lock in to those global markets? Well, the short answer is to look at the countries already doing it. Outstandingly, Norway and Switzerland, the two EFTA members, or the two large EFTA members, both of them are fully covered by the so-called four freedoms of the single market, that is to say, free movement of goods, of services, of people, and of capital. But they are fully sovereign democracies and critically Critically, they are able to sign free trade deals with countries outside Europe. We can't do that. I don't know if you've all seen the current Bond movie, Skyfall. It's a rather touching moment where Judy Dench, playing M, quotes Tennyson's Ulysses, and she applies the words to our present condition as a country. Though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. We are the seventh largest economy in the world. We are the fourth military power on the planet. We're one of five permanent seat holders on the UN Security Council, one of the group of eight 
industrialized nations. We are, implausible as it sounds, the eighth largest manufacturing economy in the world. Our language is the most widely spoken by the human species. We have unparalleled links with the United States, the Commonwealth, the rest of the English-speaking world. How much bigger do we have to be before we are able to thrive running our own affairs in our own interests? Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. Daniel Hannon, thank you. Speaking for the motion that Britain and the EU would be happier if they got divorced. Now the first voice against the motion, Katinka Barish. Welcome, Deputy Director of the Centre for European Reform. Based in London, born in Germany. And she works to improve relations between member states of the European Union. Katinka Barish, the floor is yours. Hello. Good evening. I, I am from Europe. How many of you have been to one of the other 26 EU countries? Raise your hands. Wonderful, isn't it? Wonderful and diverse. But hold on a minute, Katinka. You're going to say, what has this got to do with the motion? What has Europe got to do with the European Union? It is the job of the EU to make sure that people, business and money can flow around this wonderfully diverse area of 27 countries freely. It is not the job of the European Union to make these countries the same. If the European Union that I know is diverse and free, why do the Euro pessimists tell us that it is burdensome, bureaucratic, and bullying. As an economist, I tell you, let's look at the underlying principle. We need some common rules in Europe to make the single market work. The single market allows British business to sell freely into an area of half a billion consumers, half a billion wealthy consumers. Before we had the single market, a company taking a truckload of stuff from London to Rome would have signed 88 different pieces of paper. Today, one. Before the single market, there were in Europe 100,000 different sets of technical regulations. Today, one common rulebook. So the whole scary question boils simply down to this. Would purely British rules be less burdensome for business or more burdensome? I have no idea. What I do know is that if Britain makes its own rules that are different from those on the continent, it loses access to the safest and biggest single market in the world. We've become cynical about the achievements of European integration. Peace, blah, blah, freedom, yawn. But my father was a refugee. He wasn't even allowed to live in his own country. 
I want my daughter, I want your children to have the freedom to look for opportunities on the entire continent. I do not want them to be stuck behind high national walls erected by the Europessimists. And talking about opportunities and freedom, the European Union owes its two biggest recent achievements to this country, to Great Britain. These are the single market and the enlargement to take in the post-communist nations. You fought for this. You won. And Europe is better for it. And let me assure you that also today you're not alone in wanting to change the European Union one more time to the better. Angela Merkel wants a small EU budget just as much as David Cameron. Hey, we are stingy too. Britain has allies. It can work with them to change things. The great Britain that I have come to know and love over the last 20 years has the conviction and the courage to do this. It is not a defeatist little island that squeezes its eyes shut and hopes that the world will go away. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, we, the other Europeans, want you to stay. The French want you to stay because they share your global outlook and your courage to act abroad. The Poles want you to stay because they also cherish close ties with the Americans. And we Germans want you to stay because we need a liberally-minded ally when it comes to open markets and trade. So there's only one thing for us to do here tonight and in the future, and that is to reject that motion and let's stay in this together. Katinka Barish, thank you very much indeed. Now let's shift back to the motion itself. For the motion, uh, we have Nigel Farage, leader of the United Kingdom Independence Party, UKIP, member of the European Parliament. He famously survived a plane crash on the day of the general election, walking away from the wreckage relatively unscathed. Nigel Farage, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, good evening, everybody. Coming from a very middle-class family of people that were involved in business, my parents, quite naturally, in the referendum in 1975, voted for us to stay part of a common market. Because it seemed like rather a good idea, didn't it? But the trouble is that the small print of this was never, ever explained. Now, I first got involved in this when Britain joined the exchange rate mechanism. It seemed to me to be utterly stupid that we should wish to peg sterling against the Deutsche Mark, given that we had completely different economies, and I didn't believe it would work. But I have to tell you that my view since I've been there has changed. I now don't just want the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. I want Europe to leave the European Union because they've hijacked it. That flag, that anthem, Herman Van Rompuy. I mean, who has ever asked for this? Who has ever voted for this? But just look how they behaved. When the European Constitution was drawn up and the French had a referendum on it, they said no. The Dutch had a referendum on it and they said no. And everybody knew that a majority of member states being given a chance would have said no to a full political union. What did they do? They rebranded it as the Lisbon Treaty. 
And if that wasn't bad enough, they removed the Prime Minister of Greece, Mr Papandreou, when he dared suggest they should have a referendum. They even removed the Prime Minister of Italy, Mr Berlusconi. He may have been past his sell-by date. (laughs) But to think that they've stooped to those levels... Well, they actually remove democratically elected prime ministers. It says to me that the EU cannot be reformed. It isn't undemocratic, it's anti-democratic. And what about the rule of law? Well, it's supposed to be a treaty-bound organisation with a clear set of rules. But as we saw with the bailouts, there was no provision in the treaties to bail out country after country, but it didn't matter, because now there are no rules And even in my direst predictions, I would never, ever have thought that we would have seen the events that took place in Cyprus, where literally these gangsters have stolen money from people's bank accounts to help prop up a failing European Union. They have sunk to an all-time low. They now pose a serious threat, not just to democracy, not just to the European economy, but I genuinely now believe that we will see a rise in violence and real political extremism, because Europe has now been split by this moronic idea of a single currency, split from north to south. And far from being a Europe in which we love each other, it's becoming a Europe in which, frankly, everybody now hates the Germans. (laughs) Now, I have to say speaking to this title, to this motion, that I do want us to get divorced from the European Union, but I want it to be an amicable divorce. And I say that because I'm not anti-European at all. Indeed, I'm married to a girl from Hamburg. Yes, so no one needs to tell me about the dangers of living in a German-dominated household. No, I want us to have a good trading relationship with the European Union, but not to be part of a political customs union. And I'm very struck that there's a group of countries out there with two billion people in them, where common law predominates, where English predominates, countries out there that are our friends, our own kith and kin around the world. And it is a dreadful thing that we turned our backs on the Commonwealth all those years ago and we should re-engage with those new, thriving, English-speaking markets across the world. We've got to have a global future for this country, not just a little backyard European future. In short, I want us to regain our self-confidence. Come on, we're British. We should govern ourselves. We should insist that the only people who should govern Britain should be us, through the ballot box. And if we don't like our governments, we can turf them out and get somebody else to do it. And the good news is, this line of argument isn't just winning in this country, it's winning across the rest of Europe too. Thank you. Nigel Farage, thank you very much indeed. So you've heard the two leading voices for the motion. Let's hear the second voice against the motion. Leon Britton, Lord Britton, as he is now, British Home Secretary under Mrs Thatcher, a Prime Minister not known for her pro-EU sympathies, also a former Vice President of the European Commission and has long fought Europe's corner against the more Eurosceptic wing of the Conservative Party. Lord Britton, the floor is yours. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I am prepared to concede one thing and one thing only uh, to the proponents of this motion. I have no doubt that if we were divorced from the European Union, there would be a momentary feeling of liberation because uh, exemption from any system of rules and regulations, you first have a feeling of freedom. But the question is, how long would that last? Because the basis uh, for feeling happy uh, is the assumption, which I believe to be a wholly false one, that uh, leaving the European Union, we would continue to have all the benefits and we wouldn't have any of the disadvantages. And that, frankly, is arrant nonsense. Uh, is it really conceivable that we would be allowed to continue to trade freely, uh, to have uh, the benefits of freedom, of movement, of goods, services and people, and uh, we would just be able to carry on the same as no longer members of the European Union. Why on earth should our partners agree to that happening? Why should they let us have our cake and eat it? And this is uh, uh, not just uh, a theory, uh, this is an obvious statement of political reality, whereas some of the statements that have come from the other side are not true. It is not true uh, that uh, the European leaders removed governments uh, that they didn't like. It was the peoples of the countries concerned who removed those governments who failed them. It is not true that the problems of Cyprus today are caused by anything to do with the European Union. The European Union has tried to assist. And let me also tell you that sometimes the picture is presented of us constantly being overruled by our partners, being outvoted. But when I was responsible for financial services uh, in uh, Europe uh, and for the development of the common market with its rules in relation to banking, insurance uh, and securities, we were never overruled, not once. And I have to tell you, my German counterpart, he was outvoted. So, so long as we are able to persuade our partners, and we are able to persuade them, that it is in our interests and in theirs to follow a liberal, open policy. We are infinitely stronger doing so as part of the European Union than doing so as an individual country on our own. And that is the key point that we have to make. We are not constantly being overruled. We are often and again and again winning the argument and getting Europe to pursue policies on our behalf, which we could not have the strength to pursue effectively on our own. That's the economic case for European Union. And I don't accept at all for a single moment the talk that is made of 27 commissioners making laws. That's not how the very European Union works. It's a little bit howler to say that. The Commission has the right to put forward rules, but they never become law unless the member states, by overwhelming majority, and in some cases by unanimity, actually support them. So what I would say to you is that if we left the European Union, we would be economically weaker, 
we would be politically weaker, we would be more isolated, and we would be less influential. So how long after the divorce would we continue to be happier? About three months, in my estimate. Leon Britton, thank you very much indeed. So you've heard uh, the remarks for the motion and against the motion. The floor is now yours. We want to hear what you think, for or against. But before we hear from you, I want to tell you how you were thinking when you came into this hall. 27%, a quarter of you, didn't yet know, hadn't made up your minds. But for the motion was 30%, 43% was against the motion. So... That's the way you were thinking as you arrived. We will be holding another ballot before you leave, and I'll be announcing that at the end. There's much to play for. One quarter of you have not made up your minds. Let's hear now from the audience, and our panellists will get involved as well, please. For or against, and be brief. Uh, Undecided. Um, It seems to me that the main issue seems to be between EU membership and EFTA membership. And I wonder if the panellists could tell us a bit more about that Swiss and Norwegian option that Dan Hannon was talking about. The common complaint is that you have to sign up to the rules, but you don't have any say in making them. Is that a good argument for us to stay in the EU or not? Lord Britton. There's been a a very good independent study by a distinguished British writer, David Buckham, about the Swiss and the Norwegians and the lessons for the UK. And the conclusion is that would Britain be better off outside the EU with Norwegian and Swiss-style association agreements? And to summarise it, and I think fairly so, the answer is no, because these association agreements increasingly frustrate many Norwegians and Swiss and the EU itself. Uh, And so uh, they don't like the fact that they have no say uh, in the uh, making of the rules, but they, in practice, have to implement the rules. And you're you're getting hot under the collar there. What are the latest polls in Norway and Switzerland then, my lord? I'm afraid I couldn't tell you. Well, allow me to enlighten you then, because they're doing so badly out of it, as you just said, that 80% of Norwegians and 79% of Swiss, with all of these anomalies and imperfections, prefer their current status to full membership. And can you blame them? Look at their GDP, look at their unemployment. You know, the, the, the pro-EU campaign in Norway has folded shop. Lord Britain. The fact uh, is that uh, Norway is a democracy, and if, in fact, uh, the consequences uh, of uh, the situation which they were in now uh, was intolerable, of course they could uh, change it. Uh, the reality, though, is that they do have to apply rules which they have no say in creating. Yes, now, about one-tenth as many as we do. I'd like to have a chance to answer you, because the essence of democracy is that you listen to other people. Um, uh, as well as talk yourself. Um, uh, and, and, and the fact of the matter is uh, that uh, Norway does not want to change. Now, the important difference is this, that whereas Norway, with all due respect to them, is a small country and may be content to apply rules which they have no say in, I don't believe in this country we would want to do that. Well, the Norwegians have just vetoed the Postal Services Directive mm. because they actually want to keep their post offices open in their rural communities. The Nor- 
Norwegians have redefined their relationship with the European Union. They will put up with some of the rules, but they won't put up with all of the rules. But this idea that somehow life is worse in Norway and Switzerland. I heard Commissioner Pascal Lamy, the Trade Commissioner, say, but if Britain was to reject the Lisbon Treaty, we would be relegated to a country the status of Switzerland. I thought, well, I don't know. Katinka. Doesn't sound too bad to me. Just last week, I had a bunch of Norwegian parliamentarians in the office. The fact is, since they joined the EEA, the European Economic Area, they have taken over 8,000 pieces of single market legislation. The Postal Directive is the first time they have employed their veto. Right at the back, please. Hill Farmer from Dartmoor, how do you account for the French agricultural policy via the English? Are you for or against? Most certainly against. <laughs> Next question in front of you, please. Uh, Margaret Brett from Oxfordshire. I'm for the motion. Um, I would just like to know how many of the audience know who their European MEP is. <laughs> well, let's, let's try that. How many of you do? I fear, I can't see everyone up there, but I have only ten fingers, and I suspect uh, it's a stretch even to get that far. Okay, your point made. There's no question to the panel. Over there, please. I was against, um, been slightly swayed by the lack of arguments from my old friend Leon Britton, who 40 years ago we campaigned in North Kensington on behalf of the referendum to stay in Europe. And then it was sold as a trade association. Please give us some of the arguments why it has to be so political. Trade association, I was always in favour of. It's a niggly-piggly social policy that I don't like. Niggly-piggly social... Leon Britton, niggly-piggly social policies. Can I just say to you, Stephen, that um, uh, I have a quotation which I used to carry around, and it's a bit rusty now, from Harold Macmillan. And Harold Macmillan said in 1962 that any idea that the European uh, common market, as it then was, uh, was only a matter of trade was mistaken. It was very much more than that. Uh, he saw that as long ago as then, and he was right. Nigel Farage. I'm sorry. I mean, I was too young to vote in that referendum in 75, but I remember it. And I remember my parents both voting yes, and I remember all the political parties and all the newspapers and the television all making it clear, as the gentleman there said, this was about trade. It wasn't about politics. And now we hear people like you saying that right from the start, we knew it was political. Frankly, the British people were lied to by the political class in this country, and it's time we had our say again on this trade issue. Up on the gallery. Emma Sutcliffe, for the motion. I wonder whether we should not be worried uh, by something not mentioned yet by any of our speakers, which is ever closer political union and integration to which the um, EU is being driven by the extent of indebtedness. Thank you. Maybe could I ask the panel about the one salvation for this uh, whole debate is that Britain managed, rightly or wrongly at the time, to avoid becoming a member of the common currency. Katinka Barish, that critical question about ever closer political union. The phrase ever closer political union 
has been taken out of the EU treaty. You're fighting windmills. It's not even there anymore. What is happening on the continent is that the countries are driven by the euro crisis to deeper integration. Nobody suggests that Britain should be part of this. We're busy enough. Thank you very much. It is a great idea. It's actually at the moment fortuitous that Britain didn't join the euro. And everybody on the continent knows that this is going to stay, though. Let the Europeans get on with saving their single currency, with doing what they have to do. But this does not mean that Britain has to leave the European Union. But they can't save their single currency. It's a doomed project. The north and south of Europe cannot fit together and survive together inside the same economic and monetary union. Had it been Germany and a few of the northern countries, it might have worked. But this is doomed. So don't say that it doesn't affect us. It does affect us. But actually, ever closer union... Uh, As we now know, it was there from the very beginning, but they're using the crisis in the euro. It's called the beneficial crisis in Brussels. It's a phenomenon amongst the bureaucrats, the uh, Leon Britons of this world, that if there is a crisis, you use it to integrate Europe yet more deeply. And they're doing it to a level uh, that I think is fanatical and dangerous because they're not asking the people in the member states, whether they want to give up the ability to set their own budgets and govern their own countries. And that's why you're seeing violence and political extremism on the streets of those Mediterranean countries. If you take away from people their ability to determine their own futures, they will react violently against it. This is now a very dangerous, bad political project, in my view. A little bit of accuracy might help. I've I've always been a politician, and the appointments as a commissioner, as a political appointment, and not a bureaucratic one. Thank you. We were elected. I think think that that point can't be allowed to go completely unchallenged. It is extraordinary that we concentrate executive and legislative power with 27 commissioners who are invulnerable to public opinion and immune to the ballot box. So a year ago, in Italy and in Greece, we saw Brussels-backed coups where elected prime ministers were toppled and replaced by Eurocrats who'd never sought office in their life, who headed what were called national governments, but were in fact governments put together for the sole purpose of imposing an agenda which would have been rejected by their people in a general election. There was not one elected politician in Mario Monti's cabinet, not one. He appointed himself finance minister as well as prime minister. But it was a a government of technocrats. One thing, one thing... That, that you two and the Brussels bureaucrats have certainly in common is that you equate the European Union with Brussels. My European Union has 27 member states. Maybe you should get out. Well, there's an old joke in Brussels that if the EU were a country applying to join itself, it would be disqualified for not being a democracy. And can you argue with that? Right. When you have 27 people making not only executive but legislative decisions deliberately invulnerable to public opinion. I'm really glad to hear from you, because don't restrain your emotions in this debate. (laughs) Don't go over the top, but don't restrain your emotions. Let's get some more thoughts. Right at the back, please. My name is Christina, and I'm against the motion. Uh, My question is to Daniel. A large part of your speech focused on the fact that if we remain within the European Union... Uh, we will be prevented from signing free trade agreements. You didn't point out that the EU itself has a whole raft of free trade agreements, which if we leave the EU, we will have to renegotiate on an individual basis, which will take a gargantuan amount of time. Germany is a member of the European Union. It manages to trade with the rest of the world perfectly well, as well as taking advantage of what the EU can offer. 
Why doesn't the UK simply just do the same? Thank you. I'm Shona, and I'm for the motion. I was going to ask, assuming we actually left the European Union two years after, would the banking industry within the UK, which is very important to us, would it be larger or smaller? And if it was smaller, where would that trade go to? Thank you. Uh, There's a lady over there. My name's Rosa Crockett. I'm proud to be British and within Europe, and I am in, I'm against the motion. Could I just take the emphasis away? Two things do bother me about staying in Europe. One is that we have to keep moving to Strasbourg every so often, which must be a huge drain on our funds. And secondly, we haven't talked yet about the free movement of, of people within Europe who can claim our benefits that we have over here. I don't disagree with free movement, but our benefit systems throughout Europe are not the same, and I don't agree with them being open to everybody. Each of you will pick up on the things that uh, grab you. Uh, Further back, there's a gentleman here as well, please. There seems to be an implicit assumption that the one thing at the centre of all this that is of value is the being in the common market. From what I read, it seems to me that there is a negative cost to us being in the common market because of the jury rigging of various regulations and so on. Could you comment, please? Thank you. Up there, please. Uh, Andrew Fletcher. Uh, I'm tending in favour of the motion at the moment. And I I just have a question for the panel. Um, Is it correct or is it a myth that the EU does not have audited accounts? And if it is correct, is that a matter for concern? Thank you. (laughs) The lady here. Thank you. Linda Topping, I voted to go into Europe, but I would very much vote to come out of Europe. Economic migration is out of control. It is breaking our hospitals, our housing and our welfare. What's happening today is nothing as to what will happen in five or ten years' time. And we will see open riots on this street because our youngsters will not be able to find work. I will definitely vote to come out. Pick up these points in a moment, please, up on the gallery there. My question is, how can you have a truly common market without um, a common currency or at least pegged exchange rates? Uh, Because otherwise, countries can just manipulate their exchange rate, their currency, in order to give them an unfair advantage. So that wouldn't be a common market. That's my question. Right. Uh, One more over there, please. Peter Florence. Uh, There are 27 member states... Does the EU state a limit on that number of states? We have Turkey in waiting, which would give us neighbours of Syria, Iraq and Iran. Right. As we wait for the answers, I want you to prepare uh, to vote. Let me now ask you to pick up on some of those critical questions we've heard from the audience. Katinka Barish. The Strasbourg Parliament, absolutely nonsense. Let's stop it. The EU budget doesn't get signed off. Also, scandalous. But the reason for that is not necessarily what they do in Brussels. Most of the EU money gets spent in the member states. We would have to be squeaky clean in 27 countries, and we have never managed to do that. That is bad. That needs to improve. I share your concerns about people coming in here claiming benefits. There's one thing that puzzles me. There's more people in this country in work at the moment than ever before. Where does this fear come from? 
If you look at the East Europeans on benefits, the share is one-third that it is of the British people. And studies have shown that the East Europeans in every year since 2004 have been net contributors to the Treasury because they paid more taxes than they take out of the welfare system. I think those, system. those studies you can look at all sorts of different ways. But let, let me just throw a figure back at you. Would you agree with her? No, I don't at all. I don't at all. When you have more people in a country, when you have more people in a country, the size of the economy is bigger, but that does not mean that the net productivity per capita is bigger. So I think, you know, we can play games with figures. I'll tell you what is horrifying, though. There are 68,000 Romanians living in Britain that we know of. In the metropolitan police area alone, in the last five years, there have been 27,000 arrests of Romanians. Now, immigration over decades has brought many good, hard-working people into Britain. But being members of the European Union, we haven't even got the right to chuck out people who come here with criminal intent. And that is something that by this time next year will be the hottest issue in British politics. Lord Britain, um, there are so... We've heard in this debate so many emotive feelings as, as much as anything about Europe. How do you clarify them? We've had Katinka Barish saying it's not true. There's closer political union. So how do you change the perception if this is so critical for Britain? Um, I don't think there is an easy way out of that. I think, uh, quite honestly, that we have not been well served by our written media, and I underline the written media, uh, which uh, for a long time have had a great uh, influence uh, and have been owned by people who are passionately opposed to the European Union and therefore, naturally enough, present a picture uh, which is not exactly a balanced one. Can I just say an answer to one of the questions that was raised, limit to the number of states. There's no artificial limit to the number of member states, but no country can become a member of the European Union except by the unanimous vote of the existing members. So uh, we have a veto of new members, but there's not a numerical limit to their number. Just a word on the Eastern Europeans. Let's not forget, the Polish example is a very good one. The Poles came here in huge numbers. Half of them have gone back. They've gone back to Poland. And they've gone back to Poland because things have got better in Poland. And there was no country which, um, on a cross-party basis, was keener on the admission of the Eastern European countries than this country. We felt we had a moral obligation to them. We felt that uh, uh, it was right that they, having served and suffered under communism for so long, should be given the the opportunity to join the European Union and the European nation states uh, collectively, and I personally think that we were right to take that view. Lord Britain and Katinka. <laughs> Lord Britain and Katinka Barish, you heard from the lady at the front, though, a very emotive view about the fear of the impact of migration and uh, European. Uh, Movement, freedom and mobility, which is at the heart of the union. The fears here in this room. The economy we almost admire is the United States, which is an economy which is built on openness and flexibility. 
This is also what has made this country great. I, un I fully understand the fears of the access to welfare. Next year, the Bulgarians and the Romanians will have a choice of 26 other countries to go to because all the countries are opening up. There are, at this present point in time, three times as many Bulgarians and Romanians in Germany as there are in Britain. Where do you think they're going to go? There are these concerns. People are working together on them. This is not a reason to leave the European Union and shut your doors. Daniel Hannah. What we heard from Lord Britain a moment ago has been the justification of every anti-democratic system in modern times. People are led astray, false consciousness. These wicked anti-European press barons, you're all too stupid to make your minds up and therefore we can't trust the people. Let me deal with three of the points of the many that came I, up. I the cost to, of... Wait, wait a minute, there's a correction I, here. I don't mind you disagreeing with me, but I do object to you misrepresenting me, because I didn't actually you say what you just now said. It's a debate because it's of the Britain media it's a, being it's so hostile. It's a caricature. Hostile. I didn't say that... Uh, I was asked the question, why is opinion uh, not aware of the positive sides of the European Union? And I said that one of the reasons why was because of the ownership of a very substantial portion of the media by people right. who are very anti-European. Very that's good. So other, you accept the correction. Uh, well, that's, that's another way of saying the same thing. You're blaming the, mes blaming the message of people are not able to, to understand the full facts because they're being misled by the media. Fine. We put it how you, how you like. Let me, let me if I may, deal with some of the, the points that came up. On the cost of the euro, we can see how high that cost is. We can see it measured across the Mediterranean in unemployment, deflation, poverty, and emigration. We can see it in record levels of joblessness. And we can see it in Cyprus in savers additionally being gouged in order to prop up the monetary union, which has now been elevated as an end in itself, more important than the welfare of the people who have to use the euro. In one uh, sentence to answer the lady about Strasbourg, Strasbourg is a, a, a symbol of how pointless it is to delude ourselves that we can fundamentally transform the European Union into something it's not. For 40 years, British ministers have solemnly stood up and promised to end the monthly peregrination between the two seats, just as they've solemnly promised to reform their common agricultural policy, just as they've promised to be more generous to third world uh, uh, producers and developing countries. We have got to the point where we can say we, may, we gave that our best shot we tried to change the nature fundamentally. We failed. What is in our gift is how much longer are we going to be part of it. I remind you that the uh, motion is Britain and the EU would be happier if they got divorced. I'll remind you how you voted when you came in to the beginning of this debate. 27% of you didn't know what you felt. 30% of you supported this motion, 43% were against. Well, 22% of you have taken a very clear view. Only 5% of you now are undecided. There has been a dramatic swing. Against, 47%. For the motion, 48%. <laughs> the motion is carried.
You will make your own judgment as to what has happened here in Cadogan Hall, but there's been a dramatic swing, and uh, certainly uh, those proposing the motion uh, have succeeded in persuading you, and those against the motion were uh, able to convince those of you who were still against the motion to stay against the motion, but not really persuade anyone to join them. So thank you very much indeed for a very spirited debate here. Our thanks to the speakers, our thanks to you here in Cadogan Hall. In London, it's been a fascinating debate. My thanks to Intelligence Squared as well for making it possible. It's goodbye from me, Nick Gowing, from all of us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.